1961 in the Gallo Winery in Modesto, California. Ernest and Julio Gallo stand over Ernest's huge oak desk, peering down at the front page of a Chicago tabloid. In their early 50s, the brothers have never looked more alike, both balding with heavy black-rimmed glasses, but they've never been more estranged. Now they're staring at a photo of a black man lying dead in a gutter, his hand clutching a bottle of Gallo's best-selling product, Thunderbird. In the two months since they gave away street samples, they've sold 50,000 cases of it. Ernest jabs his finger at the photo. This has got to be the work of the Chicago mob. I'm sure of it. They're furious we're taking over their market. Julio's hardly mollified. He crosses his arms and glares at his brother. And what about your other tricks, Ernest? My friend at Italian Swiss Colony told me you made a secret deal with them and they sold 90,000 cases for us on the black market. That's bad enough, but pushing into Chicago territory? It's crazy and it could get us killed just like Dad. Ernest holds up a hand in warning. We swore we'd never talk about that incident again. What are you saying anyway, that we should give up on the whole Midwest because some old Capone geezers think they can push us around? Julio paces the room, counting his steps to calm himself down. But it doesn't work. The rage bubbles over. Hawking junk wine to drunks in the gutter. Do you have any idea what that does to our reputation? But you don't give a damn about that, do you, Ernest? Just as long as you can say we're the biggest wine company in the country. Julio has a point. Thunderbird sales plummet after other papers run with the photo. To conquer the Midwest market, Ernest will have to face down the mob. And it turns out, Julio is right. They have to create a classier image for the E&J Gallo winery. Otherwise, Ernest could lose both the territory and his trusted brother. But Julio already has one foot out the door. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana's diverse landscapes include dense timber forests and seafood-rich coastlines. And every step along the way, you'll find a business environment that's strong, diverse, and ripe with opportunity. Need proof? Louisiana is where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will soon put the first women on the moon. It's also where the port system delivers the most domestic cargo in the U.S. And Louisiana is home to the best workforce development program in the country. See what Louisiana economic development can do for you. Visit OpportunityLouisiana.com today. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, Ernest and Julio Gallo made a killing on a wartime wager and plowed the profits into a new hit product, Thunderbird. 
Now, Ernest is determined to conquer the last remaining holdout, the Midwestern market. But the turbulent 60s will soon present Ernest with an even greater adversary than the Chicago mob, labor leader Cesar Chavez and his United Farm Workers Union. Chavez knows exactly where to hit Gallo, its bottom line. This is Episode 5, The Grapes of Wrath. It's 1963, in a private lounge at Chicago's Midway Airport. Ernest sets down his glass of Gallo Paisano wine and holds his arms out in welcome to his dinner guests. They're a mix of restaurant owners, hotel, and supermarket managers. May I have your attention? Thank you all for coming. We hope you're enjoying the steaks we brought in from Chicago. And we also hope you'll stock some of the fine Gallo wines you're tasting here tonight. Like this Paisano for our best-selling Thunderbird, and our latest hit, Ripple. In fact, we brought along a new ad for Ripple. John, can you play that for us? Ernest's assistant switches on the portable record player and places the arm in the first groove. Get Ripple, the bright new drink that Ring-a-ding flavor, Ripple. Ice-cold Ripple is the new drink for lively people. It's the wine that winks back at you. The ice-cold refresher with twice the pleasure. Next time you feel like a drink, have a Ripple. College kids who usually only drink beer love Ripple. That's why we put it in beer-sized bottles. Anyway, I don't want your food to get cold. That's enough from me for now. Enjoy. A store owner raises a hand to get Ernest's attention. Hey, Ernest, I want to know why are we meeting here at the airport, lovely as it is. Why not some classy restaurant downtown? Ernest forces a smile. Well, I thought it would save me some travel time and also be a nice surprise for all of you. But the store owner smirks and looks around the table, then presses on. Really? I heard after you dropped Joey Fusco as a distributor, you demanded that he return 350 G's worth of your unsold wine stock. And when he said no, you sued him. Another store owner jumps into the fray. Yeah, and now we hear Fusco has taken out a contract on you, Ernest. What, are you scared? Is that why you're not leaving the airport when you fly in these days? Ernest scowls. Oh, come on, come on, that's silly. You think I'm scared of that old grandpa? You guys gossip like a bunch of hens in a coop, you know that? What do you say we just enjoy our dinner, okay? Ernest picks up the nearest bottle of wine and refills his neighbor's glass. But his hand is a bit unsteady. Ernest has also heard the rumor about Fusco, and so he doesn't take chances. Ernest doesn't return to Chicago for two years, until after he wins his lawsuit. Or more importantly, when the old man dies. Only then does Gallo move in to get control of the Midwestern market. That makes them the largest wine company in America, producing 50 million gallons a year. Ernest befriends politicians and sees himself as a patriarch of a great American political family, a kind of Kennedy clan of the West. And he starts spending like one, too. He pours $2.5 million into a striking new headquarters built in the classical style, with an enclosed central courtyard and Grecian arched columns. Sunlight glints off ground glass from Thunderbird bottles mixed into the cement. Sneering locals nickname it the Parthenon West. 
But as his wealth increases, Ernest feels even more determined to protect it from anyone he deems a threat. And that includes his youngest brother, Joe Jr. Joe was their father's favorite, the one who was spared a childhood as brutal as Ernest and Julio's. It's fall, 1966, at the Modesto Country Club. Ernest and Joe select their golf clubs at the first tee. Compared to Ernest, who's nearly 70, Joe seems boyish. He's only 48, with a full head of salt-and-pepper hair. Ernest leans on a four-iron and gazes down the fairway. But his mind is not on the game. Joe, remember a few years back when you told me you and your wife Mary Ann were separating and I immediately hired a lawyer for you? Joe takes a practice swing. He's engaged to get married for a second time very soon, but the memory of his divorce a few years back still rankles. During the separation, Ernest badmouthed his in-laws and Mary Ann, and Joe believes that prevented him and his wife from possibly reconciling. Of course I do. All you talked about was money. Joe, that was just what you needed. You've got to protect the family from outsiders like Mary Ann. When you have money, you have to treat everyone as if they're out to get you. But, but Ernest, Mary Ann was my family, and she's still the mother of my kids. Joe, you know what I mean. Besides, the only reason you have any money at all is because Julio and I tapped you to manage the Livingston Ranch. And we let you have a 25% share in all the ranch property we own. And on top of that, we gave you a 10% share in the glass company. Joe holds out his hand to stop his brother's tirade. Hey, Ernest, the land was part of my inheritance from our parents, and I bought those glass company shares. You didn't give them to me. Ernest steams ahead. Let me finish. I'm reorganizing the winery again and merging the glass company into it. So now that you're going to get remarried soon... We've got to make sure your new wife won't ever get it into her head that she's entitled to a stake in the winery. Who knows if this marriage will last? Ernest has always been like a father figure for Joe. But every year, Ernest seems more distrustful, more paranoid, and more vicious. As much as it bothers Joe, he just hasn't been able to stand up to him. But now, Joe's face reddens with anger. Jesus, Ernest. That's a low blow. Well, you've got a bad track record. Listen, you have to sell your stock in the glass factory to us. Just in case there's another divorce, Julio and I will give you 8600 bucks for it. Now, that's a fair price. But that stock was supposed to be for my kids. I, I've got to talk to Marianne about this. Joe's ex-wife is not at all happy about this news or Ernest's price. She and Joe file a lawsuit on behalf of their children, asking for a securities expert to determine the fair market value for the shares. The true value amounts to $650,000. Ernest had tried to take his own brother for well over a half a million dollars. Joe and Mary Ann win the suit, but Ernest is not about to let his younger brother's rare act of defiance go unpunished. It's spring 1967 in Livingston, California. Julio and Joe ride their horses side by side through the vineyard on the ranch that Joe manages for the family. <laughs> Joe, I was wondering, the past few years you've bought a fair amount of land. You've got some cattle, a vineyard, and the dairy. Do you think you still have time to manage this place? 
Joe strokes his horse's neck. He loves being out on the land, and he's still close to Julio, despite the dust-up over the glass company. He assumes Ernest railroaded Julio into it the way he does with everybody. Of course. I've always worked long hours, and I hired a foreman to oversee my ranch. It's not an issue. Why do you ask? Julio avoids his brother's gaze and looks at the line of vines stretching in front of them. Oh, uh, well, I just noticed you seem to lean on your assistant, Bill, to do a lot more lately, and uh, I often come looking for you here, and I can't find you anywhere. Joe pulls back on the reins and stops his horse. Julio, that just isn't true. Every year I've consistently raised the yield of this vineyard, and you've been over here plenty to complain to me about Ernest. I'm always here. What's really on your mind? Julio pulls his horse around so he faces his brother. Okay, Ernest feels, I mean, Ernest and I feel, you'd be happier on your own. You've got your own land and cattle now, and of course you can still sell your grapes from your vineyard to us. But it's time, it's time for you to stop working for our winery. Joe winces. It's as if his brothers stabbed him in the heart. But I'd rather keep working for you. Julio, I've always said I wanted to be a part of the winery, and you and Ernest have always said there'd be a place for me, that I'd eventually be a partner. I was surprised when you took away my share of the glass company. And now this? Is this really you talking, or is it Ernest? Joe rarely cries, but his eyes well up. Tears fall and disappear into his horse's mane. Julio looks away as he tears up, too. I know, but you've got your ranch and your cattle. You should be out on your own, completely independent. Look, this'll be the best for all of us. Joe and Julio always bonded over their problems with Ernest, the family patriarch. But now... Now Joe feels like he's lost both his brothers. It's as if he's been orphaned all over again. But more pain is coming. It's June 1968 in Livingston, California. Three years since the U.S. entered into the Vietnam War. Joe hears a knock and opens his front door to find two U.S. Army officers. They're both wearing black armbands. Sir, are you the father of First Lieutenant Peter Gallo? His son, Peter, has been missing in action since the Tet Offensive three months ago. Joe stares at them, motionless, bracing for the worst. Peter had refused to take advantage of his family's connections to avoid military service and enlisted to serve his country in Vietnam, just like Joe did during World War II. As the soldiers walk away, Joe leans weakly against the door jamb and closes his eyes. The pain is almost too much to bear. The losses just keep piling up. Last year, he lost his brothers. Now, he's lost his son. After Peter's death, Joe sinks into a deep depression. Meanwhile, his brothers thrive. A few years later, Time magazine crowns E&J Gallo the king of wine and features a photo of them on the cover. Even so, the magazine's reference to their product as pop wines infuriates Ernest. It's not enough to be the biggest winery in America. 
He wants Gallo wines to have a reputation for quality and class. But one man will soon stand stubbornly in Ernest's way. That man is Cesar Chavez, and thousands of workers in the United Farm Workers Union stand behind him. Chavez vows that if Ernest doesn't embrace their cause, he'll make a pauper of the king of wine. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's June 1973 in Salinas, California. Labor leader Cesar Chavez walks a picket line with scores of farm workers along a dusty road by a lettuce farm. He's been organizing California farm workers and staging boycotts of grapes and lettuce since the mid-1960s. But the United Farm Workers Union isn't the only union vying for the state's farm workers. The Teamsters, which already represent many wine distributors and truckers, are also courting farm workers, even though they plan to actively work against the laborers. The Teamsters' leadership is in a strategic alliance with President Nixon, who's supported by a huge agribusiness lobby. The lobby vehemently opposes Chavez's mission to improve working conditions and raise pay for workers. They want him out. The workers themselves are divided. Some are loyal to the UFW, but others, unaware of the Teamsters' real goal, believe that the Teamsters' muscle and influence will ultimately help them. The battle between the two unions gets ugly and violent. Battles rage in the vineyards, too. Now, the Gallo winery is caught between the two unions. The UFW contract with Gallo is up for renewal but negotiations break down. Frustrated, Gallo management ends negotiations with the UFW. Workers are asked to vote on whether they want to be represented by UFW or the Teamsters. The Teamsters win. Chavez accuses Gallo of holding a sham election. His fight with Gallo is about to escalate. The Spanish word for strike, huelga, 
echoes in the pleasant valleys where most of the nation's grapes are grown. It's August 1973 in Modesto. Outside of Gallo headquarters, hundreds of strikers walk a picket line yelling, Huelga! Field hands in overalls, college students, flower children in bell-bottoms, and nuns in black habits march up and down in front of the Gallo gates. They're carrying signs that read, Boycott Gallo, Nixon drinks Ripple wine, no goons, no guns, and no Gallo, and there's blood on those grapes. Ernest watches from the window of his office on the second floor. He points down at the protesters and turns to his VP, Al Fenderson. I'll lose the ranch before I knuckle under to that SOB. Fenderson doesn't understand why Ernest has turned so viciously on Chavez. When the Gallo workers first signed with the UFW, Ernest had praised the young labor leader. Ernest often bragged about his working-class roots, and he seemed to see himself in Chavez. Honestly, Ernest, I thought you liked Chavez. You said you admired his drive, and that a strong union would keep our field hands in line. Christ's sakes, Fenderson, that was a long time ago. Things change. Keep up. Things have changed. Gallo is no longer tolerant of allowing the workers to dictate hiring decisions. He much prefers the brass-knuckled Teamsters pro-management stance. The bottom line is Ernest can't control Chavez. And for Ernest, control is everything. Ernest walks back to the window. Look at him. Hell, half of these strikers aren't even gallow workers. I've had it. Go down there and tell the police to start arresting people and tell our security guards to help. Fenderson nods. We have 30 of them ready and waiting out front. This shouldn't take long. But Ernest has badly miscalculated. Fist fights break out and somebody starts throwing rocks. Police arrest more than 60 strikers and bystanders. A scene like this is made for evening news, and that plays right into Chavez's hands. Overnight, Gallo becomes a national symbol of oppression and capitalist greed. Sales plunge by as much as 30% among college students, and they're the main buyers of Gallo's new hit product line, Boone's Farm Wines. Worried, Ernest comes up with a new scheme. He calls up his Nicaraguan daughter-in-law, Ophelia. Hello, Ophelia. Uh, fine, fine. No, I'm not calling for my son. It's, it's you I want to talk to. I'd like you to make a commercial for our Spanish wine, Madria Sangria. Yes, <laughs> yes, I mean it. I love your accent. Uh-huh. Great. I'll have my advertising guys call you. See you soon. Gallo has so many brands. Ernest figures that if he wants to duck potentially bad press, why not encourage consumers to think some of them aren't Gallo wines at all? This is the pride of our family. Madria Madria Sangria is a proud sangria from California with all the rich taste of his Spanish tradition. Taste the pride of our family. New Madria Madria Sangria from California. The national television ad featuring Ophelia never mentions the name Gallo, but the ploy backfires spectacularly. The UFW files a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission charging that the commercial is deceptive. The complaint triggers a wider investigation into Gallo. 
The FTC finds, among other things, that Gallo has not only engaged in deceptive advertising, it's also illegally driven some distributors out of the wine business for refusing to exclusively handle Gallo wines. This accusation adds fuel to the fire, and it's about to burn right outside Gallo's gates. It's February 1975 in Modesto. Weary UFW supporters, many of them students, march down the main street of Modesto. They started their demonstration one week ago in San Francisco and carried their signs and banners through Stockton, Fresno, and countless other small towns. Along the route, supporters joined the march. Now, 10,000 of them are shouting outside the entrance of the Gallo Winery, and they're waving UFW's red, white, and black flags with the recognizable Black Eagle. A TV reporter interviews a confident Cesar Chavez. It's uh, tremendous support from throughout the, throughout the country, the boycott uh, against uh, the wine, the yellow wine, the grapes, and the lettuce is very effective. We see uh, victory, victories in sight. About five months after the march, California passes a law protecting workers' rights to organize. But Gallo, the Teamsters, and the UFW continue to battle in court over whether Gallo illegally interfered with their workers' right to determine who would represent them. The courts find that Gallo engaged in unfair labor practices during their 1975 union election by illegally supporting the Teamsters while harassing and intimidating UFW organizers. Finally, in 1977, the Teamsters knuckle under and agree not to compete with Chavez anymore. The following year, Cesar Chavez announces the end of the boycott on grapes, lettuce, and gallo wine. Despite the long union siege, gallo still dominates the $3 billion U.S. wine industry. In 1975, revenues topped $340 million. But it's a disappointing close to a difficult decade for Ernest and Julio. Sales stagnate. And despite their efforts to polish their brand, many Americans continue to think of Gallo as cheap jug wine or soda pop with a kick. But for their youngest brother, Joe, the 70s are a time of rebirth. He rediscovers his joy in farming and buys a ranch in nearby Atwater, California. He still attends Ernest's and Julio's weekly family dinners. He's always tried to maintain ties with his difficult family, and he always will or so he thinks. But in the coming decade, he will find his breaking point. In the next episode, family secrets resurface and long-simmering rivalries and resentments pit brother against brother in a bitter court fight over the right to the Gallo name and fortune. From Wondery, This is episode five of Gallo, Godfathers of Wine for Business Wars. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. And to listen to episodes one week early, join Wondery Plus. You'll also find some links and offers from our sponsors in the episode notes. Supporting them helps us keep offering our shows for free. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey and tell us which business stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said, 
Those scenes are dramatizations, but they are based on historical research. I'm your host, David Brown. Barbara Bogave wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering. Hey, I'm Mike Corey, the host of Wandery's show, Against the Odds. In our next season, I'm telling an amazing true story about American sailors who wrecked their ship off the coast of Africa in 1815. They're captured by a nomadic tribe. To escape, they will need to cross the largest hot desert in the world to reach civilization. They will battle against blistering heat, inhumane conditions, hunger, and thirst. Their heroic fight to get home will have a much greater impact than just on their own lives. It will influence a future president and change the course of American history in ways that are still felt today. This is the true story of the men who made it, and it's one that you don't want to miss. Subscribe to Against the Odds on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, The Wondery App, or wherever you're listening right now.